is sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. Do not allow anyone to tell you that it cannot be done. No challenge can match the heart and fight and spirit of America. A new national pride will stir ourselves, lift our sights, and heal our divisions. Together, we will make America strong again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And yes, together, we will make America great again. Now, filling in for Stacey Washington, here's Mickey Addison. Welcome back to hour two of Stacey on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Although I think in the second hour, we may just be on Urban Family Talk. So, hey, Urban Family Talk, thank you so much for listening. Appreciate it. Um, we're going to, in the next segment, we're going to talk to Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for American Family Association and uh, host of the Hamilton Corner, which you hear right here on Urban Family Talk and American Family Radio, actually. We're going to talk about the Mueller report and where we go now uh, from here, how the country should uh, come to grips with this. Uh, before we do that, though, let's just look at some of the other headlines. The Mueller uh, report and the findings there and, um, you know, Bill Barr and the attorney general um, releasing a summary of the the fact that the president is cleared, that there is no Russian collusion, that there there is no obstruction of justice or anything like that. Um, that's a big deal. So we're going to spend some time talking about that in the next segment. But first, let's look at these headlines that we may have missed over the weekend. Uh, Chick-fil-A is in the news headlines again. Um, now first, I guess the most important thing to get to would be to talk about why Chick-fil-A is in the headlines. Um, but right after that is I'm so hoping, I am so hoping that these radical leftists go ahead with their threat to boycott Chick-fil-A. And you might say, Miki, that's awful. Why are you hoping for that? Because you remember when this happened in 2012, you remember when there was a call to boycott Chick-fil-A, do you remember? that we reversed it and it turned into a boycott. You remember that? The day of buying Chick-fil-A? Oh, I remember it. I remember being in the drive-thru line for like an hour because the cars, and you know what, you're, you're waiting already to get Chick-fil-A, right? There was just something about that chicken. And so you're waiting already, but on this National Boycott Day, if you can think back to 2012, I mean, it was, it was a movement, this country um, standing up against the human rights campaign as they called for a boycott in 2012, saying that, quote unquote, Chick-fil-A was homophobic. And so the, um, I want to say that it was, uh, Governor Huckabee, who said, you know what, we need a boycott. We need to all, as Americans, support this company. This company has a right to give its money where it deems appropriate. This company has a right to, to agree with the biblical definition of marriage and to support the biblical definition of family and human sexuality. And so if, if the opposition to that is going to call for a boycott, I think it was Huckabee who called for a boycott. I remember participating. I don't know who called for it, but I showed up. I showed up with, and then I had three kids. <laughs> then we had three. So I remember showing up with all three of our kids. And I remember telling them that this is activism. And my kids, they're not really understanding what activism is. They were just in it for the chicken and waffle fries, but they were there with me. So now here's the story. This is the story. San Antonio City Council votes to stop a Chick-fil-A from opening at their airport. The San Antonio City Council narrowly voted to prevent Chick-fil-A from opening a restaurant at the city's airport last Thursday due to the company's alleged bias against LGBT rights. The council voted six to four for excluding Chick-fil-A from the overall restaurant and concession space that was to be operated by an Atlanta-based airport concessionaire. Chick-fil-A has been accused of anti-LGBT behavior for years, according to this article. CEO Dan Cathy first drew condemnation from LGBT groups in 2012 when he said he supported the biblical definition of the family unit. Marriage between a man and a woman. Let's, 
this is what triggers liberal progressives or regressives, however you want to call them, those who are in opposition to the word of God, what triggers them is a person being bold enough to say that I stand on the side of truth. So the biblical definition of the family unit, marriage between a man and a woman, this is what Dan Cathy said that he supports. <laughs> this triggered homosexual activists and they called for a boycott. But that backfired because we were having none of that. And by we, I don't just mean Christians. Please understand. Please understand that fair-minded Americans showed up to buy chicken back in 2012 because we're like, wait a minute. You're saying that a company's president does not have the right to his personal conviction? Is that, what, is that, what, is that where we are now? Well, this is circled around again. And in fact, San Antonio is saying, nope, because of this and because of how Chick-fil-A donates money, we don't want them in our airport. Let me tell you, to all of those flyers, to all, to all of the passengers, okay, to, to all of those who would traverse that airport, this is your loss, <laughs> okay? This is your loss. So you, you know, get what they give you, but you don't, you don't get a Chick-fil-A. And we're going to look at some of the figures, some of the numbers that you would have benefited from had this Chick-fil-A come to San Antonio's airport. But before we do that, Let's look at what Senator Ted Cruz had to say. He blasted this city council's decision on Twitter on Saturday when he said um, <laughs> they voted against Chick-fil-A. He said um, they didn't want Chick-fil-A from uh, in the airport because the company gave to watch this. The Fellowship of Christian Athletes and the Salvation Army. Senator Ted Cruz said that's ridiculous and not Texas. So I want you to think about that. Just let our understanding of this kind of sink in for us right now, right? So we don't have space for Chick-fil-A inside our airport terminals because they gave to organizations as recently as last year, organizations like the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and the Salvation Army. I want people to think about where we are. You have all of these companies and all of these organizations that give to whomever they want, Untold numbers of dollars they're giving to who, whatever they want, whatever cause they want to support, that's what they're giving to. And we're told that that's just okay. You know, you just have to accept it because if you're going to utilize this company's product or utilize their platform, you just, you just have to kind of turn your head and, and just deal with it. But not so much when it, as it pertains to conservatives, not so much. So Chick-fil-A giving to Christian organizations is a problem because it breeds hate. Now I want you to listen to this. This is... Um, biting the hand that feeds you is what this is. This is sort of a, a, you know, economic cannibalism, if you will. If the Chick-fil-A would have come to this little space in the airport, okay, I want to say like 600 plus square feet, this little space in the airport, okay? If the Chick-fil-A had come, Chick-fil-A would have paid $366,507 annually to rent or in rent to the city as a part of the guaranteed $2.165 million in annual rent from this company. So in order for you to understand this, you have to understand that you've got this, um, you've got this concessions company that installs these different um, kind of storefront type restaurants in the airport. You know, you've been in a terminal, you see it, right? And so this company guarantees that this amount of money is going to come in every year. And so for this particular company, um, it was $2.165 million. Chick-fil-A was going to contribute to that being in a storefront with a couple other different restaurants, okay? Right around them. Chick-fil-A's portion alone was going to be $366,507. Now, here's the other thing. In addition to that, Chick-fil-A was also going to pay 10% of their annual gross receipts to the city. 10%. We're, we're dealing in percentages here, folks. But no, no, because we're committed to radical activism. We will hurt our city. We will hurt revenue. We will hurt bottom lines. We will hurt travelers. <laughs> We will hurt flyers. I mean, there's not a place. Look, you know, and I, I say this kind of tongue in cheek, right? People understand it. But there is not a place where a Chick-fil-A shows up that it doesn't bring light. I, I, I just don't know of a place where a Chick-fil-A has ever been. 
has ever been planted where it has not blossomed and, and grown. You could be having the worst day ever. Let someone show up in front of your doorstep or let someone show up at your office with a bag that is red and white, a cup that is red and white. In fact, let me tell you, I think Chick-fil-A may be, and I might be wrong. You can check me on this. Chick-fil-A may be the only restaurant in existence where it doesn't matter what the person shows up with. If it's inside that red and white bag, you know, it's a winner. It doesn't even matter. Like you're not going to be disappointed, but this is what we're dealing with in the era of hate in which we exist, where we try to penalize and hurt companies. We fail. We end up hurting ourselves and we can't even feel it. We can't even discern it. Now, Chick-fil-A said in a statement uh, to the San Antonio uh, City Council that they were disappointed by the vote. Uh, Quote here, uh, their official statement. This is the first that we've heard of it, of heard of this. It's disappointing. The statement said we would have liked to have had a dialogue with the city council before this decision was made. We agree with council member Trevino, who is the one who um, dissented and also gave the opinion on why he was dissenting. Right. Um, Saying that, you know, we agree with them, that there is no place um, for hate, that everyone should feel welcome. And Chick-fil-A saying they plan to reach out to the city council to gain a better understanding of this decision. Look, there is something else to this story here. And let me toggle over really quickly because I want you to understand that this is serious. So there is a woman by the name of Gail Simone. Are you familiar with her? You might not be. I wasn't until I read this article. She is a Marvel Comics writer. And apparently her issue, um, one of her more recent issues that she's written for Marvel Comics has done really well. Okay, she took to Twitter to insinuate that um, Chick-fil-A is homophobic and she actually called for a boycott. She called for a boycott. This is what she tweeted, quote, we don't need to support companies that have this kind of thing in their DNA. We don't need to support companies that have this kind of thing in their DNA. Now, what she's insinuating is that Chick-fil-A, because of its founders, deeply held religious beliefs, their biblical conviction on the design of family and God's order of marriage, that because Chick-fil-A still adheres to this, then they should not succeed in this country. Well, newsflash, Miss Simone, they are succeeding. They are growing. People love Chick-fil-A. And I wish, I so wish that this would gain traction, that they would call for a national boycott so that we can flip it to a boycott. I'm always looking for an excuse to eat Chick-fil-A. I hate to admit that publicly, but it's true. I'm, I'm looking for a reason. Some of the best reasons I've found is, you know, one, well, it's Friday. Two, oh, everyone finished all of their school goals today. Chick-fil-A to celebrate. Probably my favorite would be, hey, there's been a national call to boycott Chick-fil-A and we are calling for something to counter that. And so we are calling for a boycott. That would be top of my list as reasons to go and buy Chick-fil-A. Now, I say this with a little bit of humor because I think it's utterly ridiculous, but I want people to understand the spiritual underpinnings of this type of posture in our culture. What we are gearing up for and what we are looking at are things that are described on a very biblical le- uh, level, that there is going to be a certain rite of passage that every uh, person must go through and in order to be able to engage at the cultural level. You're going to have to pass through this level of approval. You're going to have to go through this screening process where the culture will then decide if you're fit to, you know, succeed. Even buying and selling. What does that sound like? So we can ignore this to our own peril. We can pretend like, oh, it's it's just these people being crazy. But make no mistake about it. This is a spiritual force that is at work. And I pray that the Cathy's continue to stand in their conviction. Understanding this, too. Chick-fil-A does not turn away anyone, does not refuse employment to anyone. But their founders have some deeply held religious beliefs that they're not giving up because the culture has changed. We'll be right back after this break. Stacy on the right, let me just say this. Eat more chicken.
It's amazing, but true. When it comes to one of America's biggest household expenditures, healthcare, a lot of people think they've got no choice. People are used to thinking we have to do it this way, but they don't. Yes, you have the freedom to choose an alternative with your healthcare. It's MediShare, and it costs way less than the alternatives. The typical family saves $500 a month, not a year, a month. And if you're single, this can save you a lot too. And let's face it, a big reason MediShare is 400,000 people strong, it just works. They've shared over $3 billion in medical bills, so they can help share your needs too. Joining MediShare for so many people is one of those things that makes you say, why didn't I do this before? So yes, the time has come for something better. Look into joining MediShare and see why so many people are opting out of the old way and into the new. Why not look into this? Just call 855-PSALM-23. That's 855-PSALM-23. 855-PSALM-23. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. You know, Americans don't know much about the Constitution, and it apparently is getting worse. Nine years ago, I wrote and recorded a commentary about constitutional literacy. Back then, I quoted John Whitehead of the Rutherford Institute, who testified before a subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee concerning the rule of law. He provided some alarming statistics based upon a survey done about 10 years ago. They found that only one in four Americans could name more than one of the freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment. In one study, they found that only one person out of 1,000 people could name all five First Amendment freedoms. Those would be the freedom of religion, speech, press, and assembly, along with the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. I thought about those statistics when I read an editorial written by Cal Thomas. He quoted from a recent poll conducted by the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg Public Policy Center. They found that 37% of those interviewed could not name any of the five rights protected in the First Amendment. You know, nearly a decade ago, we were lamenting how few could name more than one of the First Amendment freedoms. Today, more than a third cannot name any of the freedoms in the First Amendment. Americans are not only ignorant of the Constitution, many are ignorant of the structure of government. A third could not name one of the three branches of government, and about fourth could correctly name all three. Unfortunately, some of these Americans who are ignorant of the Constitution and of our government actually vote in elections. You can't protect the rights guaranteed in the Constitution if you don't know what they are. You can't protect our system of government if you don't know how it is structured. I hope you can see that we have lots of work to do to educate Americans about the Constitution. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Socialism, go to viewpoints.info slash socialism. That's viewpoints.info slash socialism. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I'm Miki in for Stacy, and it's great to be with you. I thought that uh, we have to look high and bring in um, the absolute best when it comes to experts on talking about what's happening with um, our country in the area of politics and people losing their minds. Oh, and the Mueller report. Got to talk about that. That came out this weekend. Abraham Hamilton III serves as public policy analyst for the American Family Association and radio host of the Hamilton Corner, which you can hear weekdays at 5 Central right here on this network. So I hope that you'll listen for that. I know he's going to delve into this on his show, and I really appreciate him taking some time to just join me on Stacy on the Right to talk about it. Abe, you know, I sent you text messages over the weekend. I was so bothered by this, just so upset to think that we're looking at, what, 22 months plus um, where this has been a sham and Democrats and liberals knew it was a sham. It was an organized uh, political attack. The president called it a witch hunt repeatedly. Um, it was a sham. Van Jones called it, as you pointed out via text message, a nothing burger. I think you asked me what kind of toppings <laughs> did you say? What kind of <laughs> toppings you want on your nothing burger? <laughs> which, which means we have too much time. Um, but Abe, I mean, help us understand this. Like, let's get your, your perspective on this. Sure. Well, I'll do my best. I don't know. If, I don't know if I can help you understand it, but I can talk about what's happening. <laughs> okay. Um, so as you you mentioned on Friday, hmm, what happens when you release news on a Friday? I wonder why they did it on a Friday. Hmm. Uh, because they know it pro- most likely wasn't anything that was going to be uh, damaging to President Trump, which we now mm-hmm. know uh, following Attorney General Barr's release of his four page summary uh, of the Mueller report. And let me go back a little bit. So federal law prohibits 
the releasing of the Mueller report to the public, primarily okay. because it includes uh, sensitive information that is uh, accumulated during the course of grand jury investigations. Um, and specifically, we now know that the, the Mueller investigation consisted of his employment of 19 lawyers who were assisted by a team of approximately 40 FBI agents, <sighs> intelligence analysts, forensic accountants, and other professional staff. The special counsel issued more than 2,800 subpoenas, mm-hmm. executed nearly 500 search warrants, obtained more than 230 orders of orders for communication records, issued almost 50 orders authorizing the use of pen registers, oh and made goodness. 13 requests to foreign governments for evidence and interviewed approximately 500 witnesses. I mean, this is what has been going on. And because the report will likely include grand jury information, which all across our country, uh, grand jury proceedings are kept private for a number of reasons that will encourage people to continue to serve on grand juries. Sure. Uh, but what we do have is Attorney General Barr's conclusions concerning the, the Mueller report, which says literally that there was no evidence of President Trump or anyone connected to him or his campaign uh, was involved in any efforts by any Russians. And interestingly, Mueller refused to conclude whether or not the president could be culpable for obstruction of justice which left it up to Bob Ma- Bob Barr's office, the AG's office, and the AG has concluded there is no evidence even uh, for any claims of obstruction of justice, which will make you ask the question, in order for there to be an, a justice investigation to be obstructed, then there, it must be, there must be some criminal culpability in the underlying investigation. So mm-hmm. you can't have obstruction of justice when there's no crime on the underlying investigation. And so you literally have, which we text about, this is a gigantic nothing burger. I mean, isn't this embarrassing? I mean, all of the stats that you just listed and you add to that twenty five point two million dollars taxpayer funding for this sham of an investigation. um, Isn't this something that should anger the American people? Um, Not so much because of all of the the sheer numbers that are involved and there are many numbers for us to consider. But also, Abe, because when you think of the outcome or the aim of this, that it was to undermine our um, election process, that it was to cast doubt on, you know, this president and people believing that, you know, our political system still works. It's really sinister what has happened for the past two years. And, you know, I found myself uh, quite upset about this. And, And rightfully so. I mean, the American people, we really need to stop, take a moment and look at what literally has happened here. Mm-hmm. This entire charade began, began with political opposition research against the nomination and the candidacy of Donald Trump mm-hmm. to run for office. Then that opposition, opposition research was paid for in part by the FBI itself, as well as oh the Clinton goodness. campaign, is legitimized into a full-blown $25 million, two-year investigation that began with a lie. So so you we literally and I don't care what your political persuasion is, your political leaning is, you should be upset at this moment when you see the full weaponization of which many consider to be one of the most important law enforcement agencies in the world, let alone our country. The full force of that agency utilized to simply say to the American people, you might think you get to participate in this constitutional republic with democratic features, but if we don't like the results, we will change it. You know, and when you think about that, Abe, so I guess a lot of of, of the American people wonder what's going to be the tactic on the left, with you know, which they're already revealing. They're already saying what their tactic is going to be. Oh, we want the full report. Let's have the report. We, In other words, this is not over and this is not done for them by a long shot. But this really seems self-destructive, right? We all live in this country. We all depend on these institutions operating with a certain level of integrity that we can trust, right? So we say if the FBI gets involved, if we're talking about the Justice Department, um, then we want to be able to trust those institutions. But what it seems like liberal are doing really is attempting to tear down this country with their bare hands and cast doubt on and all of the numbers all of the stats that you just rolled out think about all of that that was pumped into this and now the democrats would look for some sort of um string or cord that they can pull and say there's reason for us not to trust this they are effectively attempting whether they know it or not or maybe i should say whether they care or not to undermine um our trust in in these entities And, you you know, that point that you made is a great point, because when you consider 
uh, efforts by Russians to interfere in our elections, which honestly has been happening since the 1930s. I mean, this is documented evidence. This is not merely my opinion. Uh, Russia is no friend of the United States of America. And so they seek to foment discord within our nation. Mm -hmm. We saw earlier this year uh, tech titans, the the, the companies, uh, Facebook, Google and others saying that, well, yeah, the Russians, they put out information disparaging to Trump and to Clinton. And even after the election, they start putting out information disparaging to President Trump because their goal is the destruction of the United States of America. So then when you see that combined with our uh, legacy media's efforts to to bolster this Russian hoax, uh, this this witch hunt, as President Trump describes it, you literally see not only the utilization of the, the FBI and the Department of Justice uh, to undermine the results of our 2016 election, but you literally see the United States media doing the bidding, frankly, of mm. a foreign power that wants to, to, to foment discord within our nation. And so when you see that happening, your MSNBCs, your, mm-hmm. your CNNs, and all of these others, I mean, you saw Rachel Maddow almost crying oh on air uh, because President Trump was exonerated mm-hmm. uh, from the collusion narrative. You have to wonder. I would say, and this may be far out for some people, I would say that you can affirmatively state at this point in the conversation that many in our mainstream media have become enemies of our country. You're absolutely right. And I think it's time for the American people to be stirred to see this and to be under no delusion that, you know, this mainstream media means anything well for us. In fact, it's in direct contrast to what uh, President Trump has done for this country. Now, Abe, you know, um, we talk on a regular basis about the church needing um, to maintain its prophetic voice for us to say, hey, you know what, when this is this is not right, it's not right. We speak out against it. But we also commend where there is something that is (laughs) that is deserving of commendation. Um, Um, I think when you look at what this president has done for this country, the American people should be able to see a stark contrast between what the liberals want to do, hope to do in 2020, what the mainstream media has done since 2016 and what this president has done. In fact, uh, the president sat down with Maria Bartiromo um, last week ahead of the Mueller report, you know, the information coming out and uh, listen to what he said as he talked about um, what he's been able to do for this country. This is clip three. When I first ran, I was never a politician. I ran. I ran on a certain platform. I've done far more than I said I was going to do. When you look at the tax cuts, when you look at the regulation cuts, more than any other president, when you look at all, it's the biggest tax cut. You look at Anwar. You look at even a thing like Right to Try, where people can now use, they're terminally ill, and they can use medicines that we've developed but that aren't out by signing a simple document. Mm. They used to travel to Asia, to Europe, all over the world to try and get a cure. You look at so many things that I've done for the veterans, choice, accountability. They never thought you'd have accountability. You couldn't fire anybody if they treated our vets badly. Now you have accountability. Veterans' choice, where if they have to wait two weeks online or if they have to wait two days, they can go out now, Maria, and see a private doctor and we pay for that doctor. Mr. President, let me end on the Golan Heights because you you, you tweeted about this today in Israel. You said it is time for the U.S. to recognize Israel's sovereignty uh, and and the Golan Heights. Why now? Why did you send that out? Uh, I've been thinking about doing it for a long time. It's been a very hard decision for every president. No president has done it. They've all, this is very much like Jerusalem, moving the embassy to Jerusalem. I did that. And I fully understand why every Clinton and Bush and Obama, everybody campaigned on Jerusalem and the embassy going to Jerusalem. I even got the embassy built, by the way, very inexpensively. But they all (laughs) campaigned on it. They never did it. And I understand why. Because when I got elected, I also campaigned on it. When I got elected, I was inundated with calls from all over the world. The leaders, mostly the leaders saying, please don't do it. Don't do it. I did it. And it's been done. And it's fine. Golan Heights is the same thing. For years, other presidents have campaigned. They said they'd do it. This is sovereignty. This is security. This is about regional security. It's not about Netanyahu's re-election. No, I don't. I wouldn't even know about that. I wouldn't even know about that. I have no idea. I hear he's doing okay. I don't know if he's doing great right now, but I hear he's doing okay. But I would imagine the other side, whoever's against him, is also in favor of what I just did. Every president has said, do that. I'm the one that gets it done. Mr. President, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Man, and, and, and you can add more to that. You can talk about what the president has done for this economy. You can talk about what the president has done for different groups of individuals in this country. But the pushback continues. Abe, I guess my question is, as you listen to what the president is saying, which he, you know, he does not shy away from talking about what he has done 
uh, for this country. I think the contrast is clear that you've got an administration that wants to uplift this nation and that wants to make this nation, um, well, great again. And then you've got a group of people who do not. Um, How do you see it? Yeah, I, I see that the contrast is stark. It has become even more stark since he's taken office uh, because you have the contrasting visions of President Trump's is America first, uh, pro-liberty, pro-freedom, pro-religious freedom, which is critically important to me, uh, versus, you know, the party of the Green New Deal, you know, the party of socialism. I've said on my program, I don't think you can call the Democrat Party any longer the Democrat Party. I think we have the Socialist Party of the United States of America. And so mm-hmm. when you see the contrast in visions there, hello, Venezuela just yeah. happened, taking formerly the wealthiest country in, in, in South America and now has turned it into a place where uh, zoo animals aren't safe. I mean, this mm. that's not hyperbole, folks. This is right. happening right here on our watch. And and I think that the, the unfortunate reality for uh, regressives, you know, I call them regressives. Shout mm-hmm. out to Brian Fisher. Um is I think their obsession with this Mueller report and this Russian collusion investigation combined with their really murderous uh, investment in infanticide, uh, all of those things being brought to bear. Uh, I have a, a person, I know a friend of mine who happens to be a person who, who votes Democrats, still working on him. Um, but he said before uh, the Mueller report was released, if President Trump comes out of all of this unscathed, I might have to vote for him. Because this is what he said, with all of the attention of the media focused on him and all of these people digging and digging and digging, trying to pull something out on him. If he comes out of this without them being able to pull anything on him, that shows he might be probably uh, one of the, the least scandals, scandalous presidents we've ever had. Wow. And, and I think that that is what you're ultimately going to find, because the, the country is not uh, whacked out far left regressive. Not everybody. That's there right. are a lot of them in the country. But I think you're going to find some fair minded uh, people who will say with all of the negative attention the president has been drawing for the last two years for him to be doing what he's doing on the executive front uh, so successfully. And in spite of the Mueller investigation and all of these investigations, and they're still coming up with zilch, not a nothing burgers. I mm-hmm. think you're going to find that some people in the middle are going to find themselves getting aboard the Trump train. Yeah, you know, this is a moment where the 2020 hopefuls on the Democrat side, on the liberal progressive side, um, or as you say, regressive, uh, this is the moment where they should all be hiding and should have no retort. I mean, this is where they should be speechless. But you've got people like Cory Booker, who's already begun fundraising off of this. I mean, he's got a letter that he's fired out um, to his potential supporters that, you know, hey, do you support um, the the revelation of the entire Mueller report? And if they click yes, then it uh, hyperlinks to a Give Now page. So they are fundraising off of what should be embarrassing to them. I mean, to me, that type of approach to this says that, you know, something's something's not connected in your thing. Like there's some misfires here where really there should be a great deal of embarrassment, but there isn't. Where do you think this goes as far as the 2020 election is is concerned? I know that for the president, this now his attention can turn to 2020 because this is not looming overhead. But where do you think this goes um, on the Trump side? But then also, you know, the primaries for the Democrats. Uh, well, first, on, I'll start with the Democrats first. I think that it's clear that they're going to continue their drumbeat using the, the verbiage of impeachment. I've long said, and I, and I maintain this, uh, that they will not use impeachment as a strategy unless and until President Trump is reelected. The reason why I say that is because they don't want to have to deal with a Mike Pence, Mike Pence presidency and they don't want to be able, they don't want to go into the 2020 election time period without being able to talk about things like impeachment and things of that nature. So they want to use that as a bludgeon for the 2020 campaign season. Uh, so if they do it, it'll be post 2020 on the President Trump side. I think he will be able to turn from this and say, listen, folks, with all of the, the hounds of hell trying to uh, destroy my presidency, look at what we've been able to accomplish. What do you think we'll be able to accomplish going forward post-2020 
if I'm able to be reelected. And I think that's going to be a compelling message for the American people to consider. Yeah, one that hopefully a lot of fair minded American voters will not be able to pass up or ignore. And hopefully that'll cause great problems for those liberals who want to upend this country. Abraham Hamilton, the third public policy analyst for the American Family Association and host of the Hamilton Corner. You're going to be back on in just a few hours. I'm assuming discussing this and much, much more. So I encourage our listeners to keep listening. Stacy on the right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I'm Miki. We'll be right back. Two thousand eighteen was the busiest year ever for eight days of hope. Steve Tiber. Over six thousand volunteers descended to Southeast Houston over a three week period during eight days of hope fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen, and helped over a thousand families rebuild their homes all in the name of Jesus. Also, Hurricane Florence hit North Carolina. We had volunteers, leaders, and equipment in New Bern, Fayetteville, and Wilmington. And then, of course, Hurricane Michael striking the panhandle of Florida. We were in Panama City Beach for five weeks, loving and serving families who had nowhere to turn. 2019 could even be busier as we plan to go back to some of these same communities to be a glimpse of who Jesus is by using the gifts he's given us to bless those who are looking for a glimmer of hope. Go to 8daysofhope.com, submit your email address, and we'll notify you of our plans in 2019. American Family Association is pleased to partner with 8 Days of Hope, and you can too. Learn more at 8daysofhope.com. Be the hands and feet of Jesus. Abraham Hamilton III. God put us in this world at this time to be salt and light. We don't fold because of the darkness that we're facing. This is not the first time in the world's history that it's gotten dark. God has called you and I to be his ambassadors, even in this dark moment. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter, weekdays at 5 p.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. The Holy Spirit speaks to everybody. The problem is most folks don't listen. Lonnie Poindexter they do listen they don't take it to heart or they get fearful or whatever but when you listen and act upon it wonderful things happen and because a man of God heard the voice of God and acted upon it it blesses me today and you as well for listening in lion chasers weekday mornings at 10 central on urban family talk it's fox wheel The Ford Explorer teams up with Michelin to become the first SUV in North America equipped with self-sealing tires. This tire will keep you going on the road without any tire pressure loss. Ford's Lee Newcomb says there's a rubber sealant basically baked into the tire. The nail goes through the tread. This sealant then seals around the puncture. The nail pops out. The sealant is pushed into the hole. 90% of tire punctures are from running over sharp objects. As the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration seeks public comment on GM's 15-month-old petition seeking approval to deploy vehicles in the U.S. without steering wheels or other human controls. One of the company's first self-driving test vehicles, a modified pre-production Chevy Bolt Electric, is going on display at the Henry Ford Museum of American Innovation in suburban Detroit, sitting next to a 1959 Cadillac Eldorado at the Driving America exhibit, which chronicles the history of the automobile. Jeff Manasso, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I'm Miki filling in for Stacy. It's been great to be with you. Um, always so good to be able to catch up with um, public policy analyst and radio host Abraham Hamilton III just to get his insight on what's happening. Um, we don't just look at things through a political lens. And by we, I mean Christians. You know, we don't just look at things through a political lens. We have to be filtering those things through a biblical lens where when you talk about corruption, you talk about what it does to a nation when the wicked rule. You know, the Bible says that those in a nation where the wicked are ruling or lording over them, man, they they groan, you know, and there's something to be understood about that. And we've got people who are seeking to lead this country, um, not to any place that's good, but there would be an incredible amount of of groaning. You know, Um, the time that we're living in now and what we have seen happen under President Trump, we shouldn't be taking that for granted. We shouldn't, you know, just kind of be living um, year to year, hour to hour. We should really be discerning and asking the Lord what he's doing in our country. Um, because here's here's the fact of the matter, as as much as we'd like to kid ourselves that there is going to be a massive um, sort of restoration 
of the moral fabric of this country. Um, I actually don't see that happening, guys. And I know you're like, oh, man, what? I can't believe. No, I don't I don't see this um, massive restoration of morality to the country at large. I think that we have turned a corner on that and we're not going to get a lot of that stuff back. But here's what I do see happening. I see Christians. I see believers rising up who will stand on the front lines in increasing numbers. I do see that. I see eyes opening. I see people awakening to the spiritual climate that's in our country today. And I see those people taking a bold position on the front line, seeing themselves um, commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ to occupy, meaning to make gains until the Lord comes again. And I, you know, I would encourage you to be a part of that number. This does not mean. And let me tell you something. Your first allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no mistake about that. There are some people who will doubt that. And there are people who will have their allegiance to a political party. There are people who will have their allegiance to a social group, um, you know, maybe to the work that they do. But your first and foremost allegiance needs to be to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his word. What does he say for us and how does he call us to live? And speaking of the word of God, I would like to wrap up today's program um, by commenting on something that I heard. So I was listening and I have a great deal of respect for Matt Walsh over at the Daily Wire. You guys may be familiar with him and Ben Shapiro and all the work that they do. And um, so I recently started listening. I wanted to check out his podcast. I'd never done that before. And so I was like, oh, you know, I can listen at my own convenience. I've, I've read his work uh, f- from time to time and I've appreciated it because I feel like he really understands and responds thoughtfully to what is happening in the culture. He's unapologetic. He's unwavering all of the qualities that I like in someone who's a public commentator. And so I enjoy reading uh, Matt Walsh, but I decided to just listen. Um, And I hadn't done that before, except for maybe when he's gone Facebook Live or something like that. And so anyway, I was listening to the podcast and he was talking about 2020 and he was talking about a potential Joe Biden run. And uh, I found it really fascinating. And then he got to reading about some mail that he gets um, on a, on a regular basis. So I guess it's a regular feature of the podcast. I I wouldn't know. It's my first time listening. And, uh, and anyways, he responded or he read a question from a listener and then responded to that question. The question was about the authority of the scriptures, right? The question from the listener was, you know, what does it mean when we say that the scriptures are inspired, you know, and, and then that listener went on to question, how do we know about versions and things like that? And, you know, what makes the scriptures authoritative? And that listener said, as a Christian, he approaches the Bible by faith. And and he says that he has found that when he reads the Bible, it's the only thing that he reads that really um, accurately depicts him and depicts the culture in which he lives. And so, which I think is, that's a wise observation. Well, Matt Walsh uh, responded to that. And, um, and, and I have to say this respectfully, I thought that Matt Walsh, Walsh was a little bit um, flippant with his response to the inspiration of the scriptures and uh, what it actually means for the word of God to be breathed out by God. And I was a little bit on the disappointed side because, you know, I so value uh, Matt Walsh's cultural commentary and his political commentary. But anybody who listens to me, you know that I care an awful lot (laughs) about the word of God and the authority of it. And the fact that it is breathed out by God, that it is inspired and inerrant. And um, I thought that he was a little bit too flippant, you know, saying things to the effect that these men who were writing these letters, he said, and I'm paraphrasing him here. When he said these men who who um, they were writing these letters, he said, you know, they didn't know that they were writing scripture, that it was going to be bound in leather and all of these things. And he's kind of just saying that as a throwaway, um, coupling actually two thoughts together that I think if you want to be as fair as you can, you'd have to take those thoughts in two separate pieces. Um, you know, as far as, you know, that the Bible would be bound in leather and all of those things. Well, no, I don't think that the Apostle Paul was thinking about that. I don't think that the Apostle Peter was thinking about that. But the other part of that, they absolutely knew that they were writing scripture, guys. And we have the Bible to tell us that they absolutely knew that they were writing scripture that had bearing on the church for eternity. This was not, oh, I'm just going to sit down and tell you how to deal with the members of Chloe's household, you know, that you guys are quarreling 
quarreling. They, they absolutely knew that what they were giving to us was instructive to the body of Christ. And I'm going to prove it to you in the scriptures because I think this is incredibly important. The other thing that Matt Walsh um, mentioned was he said, when, when you talk about the inspiration of the scriptures, he said, you know, you've got to consider the genres of the Bible, you know, and, and he goes, you know, you've got poetry. Poetry might move you and poetry might be beautiful to read. He said, but, you know, you, you don't hear a great, um, you know, orchestra uh, rendition, rendition of, you know, some great, you know, um, um, you know, symphony that you love and say, oh, that's inspired. He said, you might say, oh, that's beautiful, but you don't say, oh, that's inspired. And he said, we have to have the same approach <laughs> when we're reading the scripture. So basically like the historical books, you know, you're not going to look at that and say, oh, that's inspired. You know, it's, it's history. It's, you know, a document or a documentation of what has happened. Then he said also the same thing with the poetry books. Um, so I disagree with that because when we talk about the Bible and the word of God being inspired, and I'm going to tell you, every Christian needs to know this. Every Christian needs to be able to defend your highest authority, which is the word of God. So when the question comes up about is the Bible inspired? You need to say, yes, the Bible is breathed out by God. That means that everything in it is God's will for us to know. So the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit of God searches the mind of God to take the things of God and make that plain to us. So everything in the Bible, whether it is descriptive or prescriptive, is inspired. It is breathed out by God. This is God's communication to us, and it is very important. Now, let me start with, um, as far as we, as it goes, looking at the scriptures, this idea and this notion that the apostles didn't know that they were writing scripture. Well, that actually falls on its head because I want to, and I'll start with, um, and I'm just going to flip my Bible here. Um, I'll start with second Peter, second Peter chapter three, the apostle is setting up, um, talking about the day of the Lord. Actually, he's just been talking about the day of the Lord. This is second Peter chapter three. He's just been talking about this promise that the Lord has made and that there are scoffers. They don't believe it's going to happen. And he says, um, but look, the Lord's not slack concerning his promises. And then he goes on. The apostle Peter says, then how do you live? Right. And so I want to pick up from that point to where um, this is one proof among many that the Bible is not only breathed out by God and inspired by God, but that the writers of the Bible, certainly the apostles knew that they were writing scripture. They knew that they weren't just writing letters of communication, that they were giving something to the church that the Lord had given them to give to the church. In um, second, second Peter chapter three, verses 14 through 18, listen to this. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, and I just mentioned he's talking about the day of the Lord, right? Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So there you see right there, clear acknowledgement that this that Paul has written has come from God. It is a wisdom that has been given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. He continues, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, wait a minute. The apostle Peter is talking about our brother Paul and what he writes in the scriptures and he's 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 saying what he writes gets twisted by ignorant men as they twist the other scriptures so the apostle peter is putting what paul is writing to the church on par with scripture essentially the apostle peter is saying that paul is writing scripture a lot of people overlook this a lot of people miss this when they read the bible Earlier in the Apostle Peter's letter, in the first chapter of his second letter, he knows that he's approaching death. He knows that he's about to die. And how does he know this? Because he says that the Lord Jesus Christ has already told him that the putting off of his body is near. So the putting off of his body is near, right? And so what does he want to do? He wants to leave something that the church, capital C, will always be able to draw from. It's not just this group of people living in the first century. 
It's the church for all time. He is making an eternal deposit in the body of Christ. And so the apostle Peter goes on. He's talking about how we've got to supplement our faith. He's talking about all of these qualities that need to be ours, being steadfast, being self-controlled, all of these things. He's saying, add these things to your faith. And if you do these things in increasing measure, measure you're, ne- you're never going to fall, is what he's saying. But then he says this, listen. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. The Apostle Peter continues. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, end quote. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Listen to this. This is verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone, someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In the process of writing this letter, the apostle Peter knows that he is writing that which comes from the spirit of God and that the spirit of God has taken the things of God, those things that are in the mind of God and has communicated those things to the apostle Peter, that he would write them down for the church, that they would be and should be preserved for the church. What does he say? And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. It's to them that he's writing and it's to us that he's writing. And he is well aware that what he is writing is what God calls prophecy. He knows that he's writing scripture. He knows that God has communicated to him. He knows that he has served as a witness. In fact, he uses his serving as a witness, seeing these things happen as a way to validate what he's about to communicate as a way to anchor this truth. Guys, it is so important. I I tell you this with love and strong conviction. When the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and tells him that all scripture is breathed out by God, that all scripture is inspired. The word there for the breathed out by God is the Greek word theopneustos. And what is he saying? He is saying that this is divinely breathed into. So what is coming from us, all scripture, what is coming from us is coming from the mind of God. In fact, before Jesus departs, Jesus is encouraging the apostles and you would do well to, again, be familiar with this too. And I'm just going to flip to it because it's important for us to be able to navigate our Bibles. It's important for us to be able to read the scripture and understand and be comfortable using the Bible. But the Lord Jesus tells the apostles, and I want you guys to understand this. The Lord Jesus tells the apostles that the Holy Spirit is going to remind them of the things that he has said. And let me give it to you. Here is the context. He's talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. This is John chapter 14. I'm going to start at verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. A lot of times we take that and we apply that to us in context. The Lord is talking to the apostles and he's telling them that, you know what? Those things that you need to recall, those things that need to be documented, those things that need other people to hear them. The Holy Spirit will take those things and he'll remind you. He'll teach you. 
He'll tell you those things. In other words, the scriptures are breathed out by God. The Holy Spirit has taken the things that are in the mind of God and he communicated it to the apostles, to, to those who would write scripture by the leading of the spirit that we would be equipped. Guys, we can defend our faith. Let us do that. Thanks so much for listening to Stacy on the right. I'm Miki. It's been great.